go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 10. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. <clears throat> it is good to be with you all this morning. Uh, it's been a good weekend so far. We've been able to learn a lot about the area. We've been able to uh, learn just more about family members. Uh, it's, it's been just a very encouraging weekend for Paige and I so far, and we've uh, really enjoyed being able to meet everyone that we have so far. Now, with that being said, uh, you, many of you have already heard me ask you several times for your names. I'm trying to get it uh, in place, but it, it tends to be hard when, you, when you're just uh, meeting people. So just give me some more patience on that. But um, as I said, if you want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to focus on a very familiar passage this morning, uh, one that, you, that many of you probably know by heart, one that you have actually probably uh, could, could uh, say without even looking it up. And that is uh, what Jesus says about uh, the, this sword that he comes to bring. I'll just say, uh, I think some of the fonts on the, on the titles are, are off. They, those didn't transfer uh, fully, and that, that's my fault. I, I'm not very technologically savvy. So, uh, but, but I think all of the points are uh, going to be accurate, just like they were yesterday. So uh, they should be able to, you should be able to see some of the passages on the screen. And one of the reasons I like to put the passages on the screen is so that way uh, it makes it easier to, to uh, get to all, just as, much, as many of the passages as uh, I have on the outline. So uh, I, I try to make it easier so that we don't have to turn as much. But I still invite you to go ahead and turn and make sure that what you're hearing is, is scriptural. Make sure that it is uh, not at all uh, failing in, in sound teaching. And if it is, I'd invite you to come and talk to me about that. And, and you would be uh, a true friend and, and a brother in Christ doing your responsibility if you corrected me on that. Well, let's go ahead and read Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. You, you recall that during this chapter, Jesus is just, just really getting into all of the, the afflictions that come for, for servants of God. And he's talking about all of the, the uh, not only the afflictions that come, but the persecutions that will come for being servants of God. And so in the middle of all of this, he begins in, in, in verse 34 saying, Do not think that I came to bring peace on, on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, again, I know that this is a very familiar passage for all of us. Uh, and honestly, it's pretty clear to understand. Um, I like to frequently make the point that God does not speak in language that is, that, that is just too high for us to, to even contemplate. Now, there are some difficult passages. You know, you go to the prophets and there, there's some difficulty in trying to understand exactly what's being said there. But the message overall, we can definitely understand. And that's somewhat what we talked about last night. It is, it is uh, simple language. It is, is, is a simple message that God is trying to get across to us. 
And we're supposed to pick that up. He's given us, he's created us with the cap- capability, the, the mental faculty to, to pick that up and make the proper application that he wants us to make. Sound application. And so it's not high, complicated language, especially in this passage that we just read. But God's word is often quite simple in its clarity. But it tends to be difficult in its application. It, it tends to be that the reason we maybe act like we can't understand is because maybe we don't want to see the application that he's trying to get across. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning. I want to focus on what Jesus actually says that this division should look like, what it will look like, and how deeply it will affect us, how deeply it must affect us. So, so just two points again uh, for this study. Just We're going to talk about the necessary divide that he is bringing up in this passage, and then we'll talk about the necessary devotion that we are to have. So first of all, he talks about the sword that he's come to bring. In verse 34 again, he says, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now that sword, as you see in Ephesians chapter 6, as, as Paul's going through this, this armor of God that we are supposed to put on, that we are supposed to, to be fully clad with, to, to protect ourselves, to be prepared, to be ready for battle. Uh, he gets to the sword after he talks about the helmet of salvation. He says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's very clear uh, just as you look throughout the New Testament, that the imagery that is used when when uh, they talk when they use um, as they talk about the word, referencing uh, the sword over in Revelation chapter two, Revelation chapter two, there is uh, uh, here's a moment where during the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, <clears throat> that there's a message that that Jesus has for uh, seven churches. And particularly, he comes to Pergamum, the church in Pergamum, in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. And it says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Well, we can infer who that is, right? Because this is Jesus writing to every letter. But he says, this is the one who says this. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things uh, sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, first of all, it's not all really you know, condemnation. At the beginning, he points out some things that they actually are doing right, and he's pointing out some faithfulness, this steadfastness in this word with the sword. And, they, uh, and he talks about this steadfastness they have of, of his faith, of the faith in Jesus Christ. And it's in hostile territory. Very hostile territory uh, Tory to Christians. Now, he doesn't end there. There are some issues that he has to deal with, and so he very directly deals with those things. But, but in verses 12 and 16, how does he deal with it? The message is repent. Now, what is, what is it that they are supposed to learn from? What is it that they are supposed to use to, to repent? Well, it's, I think, this sword of, uh, that comes from his mouth, this, this word that makes war against them Uh, and that is interesting to think about how the sword the word of God is indeed something that makes war 
but it's particularly, we're not talking about the physical necessarily, we're talking about the spiritual. Hebrews chapter 4 talks a little bit more about the word of God. In verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's a, that's a pretty powerful weapon, isn't it? There's no weapon on earth that can judge the intentions of the heart. But Christ brings a sword that can. It is the only thing that can. Uh, and, and, and in a very real sense, uh, I think that this is a good way to refer to the word because it's not like when you are, are confronted with the word of Christ, with the gospel, that there's just no pain whatsoever. This is, a, I think, a misconception that, that people tend to have when they come to the Bible. It's not like when you're converted, there's not going to be any struggle. It's not like when you are, are presented with a very conflicting message of your current state, that there's not going to be pain. There is going to be struggle. There is going to be pain. It's uncomfortable to have to acknowledge that I am not what I should be. It's uncomfortable to hear, unless you change, you are going to essentially be spiritually a walking corpse. You are dead in your sins. And there needs to be a fundamental uh, uh, metamorphosis. There needs to be a transformation. And you need to cut at the very root these things that keep you in this state of, of, of being dead spiritually before God. And you, need, and you need to acknowledge this and act on it if you're going to have a relationship with God. That is hard to hear. And, and thankfully, there are many people here who have been confronted with that message and yet still went forward with it. They acted on it. And they did exactly what Christ has given us instruction to do if we want to become his disciple, if we want to follow after his footsteps. But, but this, this I, I just want to put away the notion that, that it's going to be painless and that it's not going to be difficult. At times it is. And even after you've become a Christian, there are times when we're reading through a passage and we think about, well, this is an area that I'm not very tight in. I've never really thought about this before. I remember uh, when I was younger. I, it really was just a few years ago. But it was before I became a preacher. And I was... Uh, it, and, and I know I'm still a young man. That sounds weird to say when I was younger, but but factually, it was when I was younger. Uh, but I was I was living uh, with my mother, and and her and all four of my siblings are had gone. They had walked away from the Lord. They they've all become unfaithful, and it was at a time where really. I was basically a man, and I had to start making my own decisions. I mean, I was paying taxes for goodness' sake. So I mean, that's. I think that there are some choices that you can make when you get that kind of responsibility. It was no longer a question of, uh, you know, can I do anything? I could. And I remember reading through 1 Corinthians 5, for example, where it talks about a, a sinning brother or sister. It talks about a sinning Christian, someone who bears the name of brother. And I remember reading through that and, and hearing J.R. even, J.R. Bronger talk about this, and I just kind of tuned it out. But finally, I was confronted with it, and I really couldn't get around it. I had to acknowledge that this is what it says. Now, how am I going to apply it? Am I going to be honest about this, or am I going to continue to act like nothing's wrong? There's something wrong. And, you, and, and, and eventually, I ended up moving in with my, with my dad because they're, they're, they're separated, and, and he has remained faithful, and we just continued going to services. And that proved to be one of the best things, one of the best decisions I had ever made. First and foremost, because I think I did what God's will instructed me to do. But secondly, it had a great impact on, on my spiritual life and my relationship with God. 
Was it comfortable? Was it painless? <laughs> no. Very simply. But it had to be done. Otherwise, I think the growth would have stunted. And I would not have gotten past that. But now, thankfully, by the grace of God, I was uh, given more opportunities to grow. And now I'm able to preach his word. And that has been uh, a, a beautiful, beautiful blessing. But again, it's not going to be something that is painless. There are things that the word is meant to cut out of our lives. Now, kind of along those lines, it does not bring peace on earth. And, and I like the way that Jesus says that back in Matthew chapter 10. You know, sometimes we, someone might read that and they think, well, I thought Jesus did come to bring peace. I thought he was a, a prince of peace even. Well, yes, he is. And he does bring peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. That is 100% true. But what peace, what peace is, is Jesus talking about here? He's not talking about that spiritual peace. Come back to the physical. Remember that the Jews of that day, they were very political in, in their, uh, when it comes to the nation of Israel, it wasn't just purely uh, religious and, and spiritual. They, they were very physical about it, and they thought when the Messiah came, he was going to bring this physical kingdom. He was going to be like David. Oh, if we could get another David. And, he, and, and if we got, had another David, that would run the tyrants out. And that's what a lot of the Jews were waiting for. And Jesus frequently throughout his ministry has to correct that and say, you're, you're thinking about the wrong thing. There's actually a much more uh, impactful uh, application that is, that is meant by this king. It's not going to be a kingdom that can be corrupted by physical uh, ailments, by physical things. It's going to be a kingdom that can't be toppled, that can't be touched by the things of this world. And I think that's a part of what Jesus is trying to say. He's not saying, he even says, I did not come to bring peace. Uh, uh, do not think I came to bring peace on the earth. Uh, and sometimes I think people confuse that and think, well, the, the gospel is going to make peace everywhere it goes. If that's the case, then it failed. But I don't think that was the intention. That wasn't Jesus' intention. There's always going to be war. There's always going to be conflict. But what Je the peace that Jesus came to bring was one of a spiritual nature. It wasn't a superficial and carnal one. Like the Jews tended to, to make their applications so, uh, so surface level and, and very carnal. Rather than thinking about the deeper application that God wanted them to make. So I think that's also an important distinction to make. But, but look at how deep this division would cut. In verse 35, he quotes Micah, which we'll come to Micah in just a moment. But he says, for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's, enemies will be, uh, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now, this division, as, as you see on the chart, it is not going to be something that, that, is, is, that affects very little. It, there's a subtle change in our lives. It, it's something that affects everything. This division will occur and it will affect all relationships. And I think one of the reasons he quotes Micah here is because he's kind of setting the bar. What is the closest relationships you can have? Those of your family, blood relatives. And he's saying, this is what I've come to bring. And, and it's not like Jesus, I think, is happy about this. He's just telling what's going to happen. He's telling them the facts. You follow me. This is what's going to happen. Even those that are closest to you, that you thought that nothing would ever come between you, something will come between you. That is how impactful the message of, of the gospel is. That is why we started by saying this is a complete overhaul of a life when you are converted to become a Christian. It's not, God does not, he, he's not asking for Facebook friends, right? 
He's asking for followers, for disciples. Not somebody that you just kind of, you know, barely know. Someone who has a deep relationship. And so it will affect the deepest relationships as well. And I think that, that he very, uh, I think there's a reason that he sets the bar at family. So that way we can understand that there won't be any exceptions to this. It will affect everything. We generally only talk about family members with regard to possible exceptions to certain things. And, and, and again, I think what Jesus says here is there won't be. And not necessarily because we trying to follow after Christ are just being so bitter and being kind of like the Pharisees, just being so self-righteous and just kind of pushing people away. I think it's going to be kind of the opposite. Rather, I think that this is the effect of, of, of the gospel in someone's life, that other people that are around them, they see that and they can't take it. Uh, and this is an effect that righteousness always have. And, and this is where I want to go back to Micah in chapter 7. Micah chapter 7, there are a few uh, moments throughout this, this prophecy where messianic messages come up. And here's one of them. In the teaching uh, where, that Jesus quotes, uh, beginning in verse 5 of Micah chapter 7, he says, For son tr uh, Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. Now, you, you read through this, and, and, and I was listening to a, a lesson, a sermon on Micah not too long ago, and I thought it was very interesting because I, I, learned, I learned something interesting about how the, the rabbis would look at the, uh, what Micah is saying here and I don't think really got the full message. See, what it looks like as you go through chapter 7 is that this is what the situation has devolved to. And I think it has. I think, obviously, uh, I think one of the re main reasons that God sends so many prophets is because Israel is going further and further away from the truth. And they are going astray and they are doing things that God says you never should have even thought of. Uh, and so he's sending messengers to, to kind of direct them and try to correct the attitudes, try to correct their mindsets and their actions. And so it had devolved. But I don't think that's the main purpose. What is Micah saying all throughout this chapter? He starts by saying, woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. The prince asks also to uh, also the judge for a bribe, and a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. I think what Micah is, is saying is, here I am trying to serve God in an assembly of truly wicked people, of unrighteous people. And what's going to happen in, in your interactions if you are truly righteous and only trying, not that you're like trying to show it, again, like the Pharisees. Like, look at me. I am holier than you. And look at me. I'm cleaner than you. And you are all. That's not what Micah's been doing. His message is, is trying to bring people back to God. And so he's not trying to push people away in that sense. But what he is saying, I think, is, is, is uh, something that we could maybe kind of understand is that there are no righteous people here and therefore it is only unrighteous people and they hate that which is righteous. They hate those who are trying to do righteous things, trying to live righteously. And so what he's saying ultimately I think is the, the one that is righteous, they are forsaken and they are, are abandoned and they are, and they are hated for living the way that they are. Now Jesus quotes this, this prophet I think to say, 
this is because of me. Now, the rabbis would look at this and they would say, well, this is what it's going to be like up until the Messiah comes. Jesus says otherwise. He says, no, this is going to happen specifically because I have come, specifically because I have affected someone's life. And John chapter 3, I think, is so helpful in this. Because as he's talking to Nicodemus, what does he say about, about those who, who do the deeds of darkness, who are not sons of light? What does he say about their exposure to the light? Obviously, we know in verse 16 that it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What is Jesus saying here? The world's already been condemned. They don't, they don't need any more help. I didn't come to condemn them. They've already done that themselves. I've come to save. I have come as a light in the darkness. Now there will be some who have, who have been steeped in wickedness and evil for so long that that is their being and they will hate the light. Because who likes for their wickedness, who likes for the darkness in them to be exposed? Except the honest. Except the ones who want to be righteous. And so I, I think that uh, uh, kind of brings, uh, sheds a little bit more light, no pun intended, on, on what we're trying to say here. This causes division because unrighteous people are exposed by righteousness in their lives and they hate it. And, and I, I mean, I, I've had moments in my own life and I've seen several other brothers and sisters in Christ who have been through the same thing with family members, with people, that, friends that they were very close to. All they have done, they, they did not try again to push someone away and to say, you're just a terrible, awful, wicked reprobate. You're just a terrible, wicked person. But rather, they just say, I think this is what the Bible says, very simply. And not with a hateful inflection, but how do people take it? How dare you? You, so you, you think that I'm just, just the most evil person in the world. I didn't say that. Why are you responding that way? Maybe there's a reason that people respond so, so animously and so defensively. Because maybe they do see that there's something uh, amiss, something not right, off kilter in their lives when they look at just the plain words of God. And so ultimately, I, I think that most of the time, the divisions that occur, it's simply just because people want to do right. And the people that want to live unrighteously, they see that, they're convicted, but they don't act on that conviction. Rather, they try to distance themselves from it. Now, now. That is the divide that Jesus says that he will bring, and it is deep. And it, is, it isn't necessarily easy, but it is something that will come. We have to acknowledge that and recognize that. Now, when it comes to that divide, I think there's also a devotion that Jesus speaks of. Because, obviously, when there is this kind of uh, conflict, it's going to take someone who will hold fast to the word. It's going to take someone who has the resolve, not in themselves, but resolve in God's faithfulness. And in his will that is unshakable. And so that's what I want to talk about for the next few moments. The, the this devotion that Jesus says we are to have. First of all, when it comes to division, I just want to say if, that it isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes there, there are separations that must occur and are actually healthy. Uh, can you think of one example? 
I think marriage is one of the best examples you can make. I don't think that it is uh, the best situation when someone, it, you know, gets married, and that's supposed to take precedence over all things. And every time, you know, the, the husband is going to make the decision for whatever reason, and he's going to make a decision, he doesn't talk to his wife, but he goes and talks to his mother. That, that's it's going to cause some conflict. There's going to be some chaos in that house. Trust me. And I've only been married for almost three years. I mean, we, we've learned some of these things already. These are things we have to work through. And, and, and I, you know, first of all, let's just look at Genesis chapter 2. What does God say at the beginning that man needs? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That word also is translated uh, at other times as, as forsake, as abandon, even neglect. And I want to look at a few of those examples over in Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24, very quickly, and I, I meant to add these passages specifically to the, to the charts, and I, I forgot to do that. But Genesis chapter 24, as, as uh, 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 one of Abraham's servants is being sent to find a wife for Isaac, he finds Rebekah. And uh, one of the things he says as he's on that journey and he's speaking to them, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not left, forsaken his loving kindness, and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. So that word forsaken, it's the exact same word that God uses for a man and a woman who become one flesh. You need to leave, you need to forsake certain relationships. Over in Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. Very quickly. In Leviticus chapter 26 in verse 43. We kind of mentioned this uh, yesterday, talked a little bit about the blessings of obedience and, and curses that would come with uh, disobedience of the people of Israel. But kind of as he's talking about this in verse 43, look at the word that's used here. For the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They meanwhile will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. So if they uh, go so far as to not keep the Sabbaths, I will make sure that the, that the Sabbaths are kept, uh, that the land will uh, fulfill its Sabbaths. The land will be abandoned by them, forsaken, left. One more passage uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 27. He says, also you shall not neglect the Levites who is in your town, for he has no portion or inheritance among you. I know that that's... Uh, Maybe I'm beating a dead horse here, but I wanted to see how many times that word is translated in different uh, ways to show exactly what God means when he talks about the marriage relationship. What are you to do when you, when you gain a husband, when you gain a wife? You are to leave all other relationships. And I think that's pretty easy to understand. I mean, in one sense, this is the most important relationship that we have on earth. Because you're supposed to drop all other allegiances and drop all other alliances to be with this person. And, and yes, that does mean to a degree you need to neglect even your father and mother. I'm not saying that's easy. Uh, that is very difficult for a lot of people. But I would just say most dysfunctional families are usually those that didn't make the appropriate divisions from the beginning. And they've got to work through some of those problems. But, but all of that just to say, why is it that, that we forsake all others? Even someone so, so close as a mother and father. Because this relationship is, is, is one that exceeds all others. And it takes precedence over all others, as, as we've already mentioned. Now, 
with all that being said, the reason I wanted to bring that up is because God says this is the exact kind of division that he wants us to make when it comes to entering a relationship with him. You want to become a Christian. You want to become my child. You're going to have to forsake. You're going to have to leave. You're going to have to neglect all others. Oh, back in Matthew chapter 10. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 in verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Verse 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So he quotes Micah saying that there's going to be division even to this deep level. But then you get to verse 37 and he makes the case that you need to be willing to make this division. If you're not willing, then me and you have no business together. You must be willing to, to love me more than any other. And that idea of unrivaled love, uh, I think, is, is, needs, to be, uh, needs to be brought back, especially when it comes to uh, the marriage relationship. If it did in our country, I think things would be so much better. This idea of unrivaled love, unrivaled allegiance. Look at Luke chapter 14. One that sometimes people might question. It says, if anyone comes to me, very similar to what we just read, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hate, ooh, hate's a strong word, isn't it? And I thought we weren't supposed to hate. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is he saying? Well, he's not saying to do something that God obviously does not want us to do. What he's saying is... When you, are making, when you are comparing relationships, your relationship with me, it, it shouldn't even be able to compare, even to that of one you have with a spouse. Uh, again, I'll mention Tom Holly a lot because I think he's just a, a, one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard and just a very wise man. But he, he puts it like this as he goes through Luke chapter 14. I say, I love my wife, and I mean it. I say, I love pizza. And I mean it. <laughs> but but do, are we talking about love in the same way? If so, that's very inappropriate and very weird. But we're not talking about love in the same way. We're, we're using the same word, but we don't mean the same thing. When I say I love pizza, listen, this is like comparing apples and oranges. There is no comparison. They're not even on the same list. That's what I think it should be with God. <laughs> There, there's not even a list. There's no one that comes after him. I, he has my ultimate allegiance. No one else and nothing, and nothing else. Nothing comes in between me and God. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a very interesting chapter, uh, but, but we just want to look at a, a few verses here. Beginning in verse 29, as, as Paul is talking about, he's giving them some advice and he's answering some questions that apparently they had written to him beforehand. And he says, for your current distress, for your situation right now, it may be better not to marry. Now, look at what he says in verse 29. But, I say, but this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as, th as though they did not possess, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. 
and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. What is Paul saying? He's not saying that, that you know, if you're married, then you just get to leave Abandon all of your responsibilities that you obviously have when you do take on a spouse, when you take on that role of, of being a husband or a wife. You don't just get to say that, oh, I'm no longer married. What is he saying? Again, I think it comes back to what relationship takes precedence. You need to act like God. There's no comparison. And no one can contend with your relationship with him. And that is difficult because... You know, who is the closest person to us in the world? Our spouse. They know everything about us. And we dedicate our lives to make sure that we, that we fulfill our roles to them and our responsibilities to them. That we provide for them. That we support them. That we love them. God says, I want that with me and you. And if you're not willing, then you don't have a place in my kingdom. You, don't, you cannot be one of my disciples and so I think that's important to make that point as well when it comes to devotion that we are supposed to have. So as he expects unrivaled allegiance from us, I just want to make some application here. I want to ask the question, who has your unrivaled allegiance? Because I think that there are relationships that we can see in our own lives where we are very willing to, to sacrifice. There are relationships we have with people where when we are kind of put out of our way, it's okay. Why? Because I love that person. And I wouldn't do this for just anybody. I'm doing it because, because of our relationship together. Now, I want to think about some things, some relationships that, that we can have that can contend with God. Or maybe some, some habits that we have that can uh, contend with God's place in our lives. What about that of, again, a spouse or blood relatives? Can we sometimes show them uh, uh, precedence? Can we sometimes show them preference, children, over God's people? You know, God says that, that the church is the family of God in Christ. And sometimes I think people forget that. They show a higher allegiance to, to their blood relatives than they do to brethren. People who have done what they're supposed to do. Who are closer in blood because they've been, put, they've been washed in the blood of Christ. And yet you still have people, Christians, who, who will throw brethren under the bus for their mother, for their father, for their brother, their sister, even maybe, maybe a child. I'm not saying that, that it's not difficult because those are close relationships. But to put him over what God says is supposed to take precedence, that's, that's not the correct response. What about those who, who put their job or their career, maybe even sports, over the assembly? What matters most? What, where do I want to spend my time at more so? Do I want to come to the assemblies? The gospel, the gospel meetings, they're, they're during weekdays. You know, we're supposed to only meet on Sundays and Wednesdays, Right? And, and ask much more of that. Listen, I have, I have things that I really, and I think this is really the heart of the matter, that I want to do more. Do we put something over the assembly of, of the brethren again? Those who are supposed to take precedence in our lives over other relationships, the carnal ones? What about uh, the way we are perceived by the world? Just maybe a palatable, uh, maybe a, a comfortable persona, a palatable persona to the world over really God's calling. Sometimes we kind of 
will engage in things that we shouldn't. Maybe it's a bad joke that the people at work. I'll tell you one thing. I, I refused to engage in conversations. Uh, the last job I had before becoming a preacher was a janitor. And, and this may surprise you, but it was probably my favorite job <laughs> that I ever had. Uh, because I got to talk to a lot of people and I got to, to learn a lot about people as I would walk through the buildings. But one thing I absolutely loathed was the lunchtime. I enjoyed the fellows that were there, but when they started talking about marriage, I, I, I had nothing to add to that, except for maybe rebuke. But there, I, I refute, all I wanted to do was just marry, because I was waiting for that day. All I wished for was so I could just come home to a house with Paige as my wife and be able to just talk to her and, and go to sleep with her right next to me. But, but these guys, they had that, and they were disparaging. They were just, how could you speak so poorly about the person that you're supposed to you know, support more than anyone? And yet you are joking about her, and you are putting her down in front of your buddies, maybe just to, maybe just to fit in, maybe just to look cool, maybe just to be funny. Let me tell you, I never want to look, I never want to be funny. At, at the cost of, of Paige's uh, confidence, at the cost of my wife's uh, confidence. And if I am, I am ashamed. And, and we shouldn't, uh, and, and so you look at that kind of, the way that people will uh, maybe joke like that, do we add on to that? And do we engage in the very same thing? Something, an institution, a relationship that God says is holy. I don't want to be a part of that. I would rather take on God's calling, and maybe it's going to be like Micah, where unrighteous people do not like your responses. So be it. I'm going to have the confidence in God's word, just like Micah, in Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. I'm not going to shy away just because God's will goes against the will of the world. Well, finally, I think he ends with, with uh, the, the really ultimate devotion. And that ultimate devotion is secured when we deny ourselves, when it comes down to an individual level. I think that is the truest test of devotion and sincerity. In, back in Matthew chapter 10 again, Matthew 10 in verse uh, 38, he says, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Now, what does it mean to carry your own cross, especially in the first century. What do you think about the fate of someone who's carrying their own cross? They're marching to their death. And to a degree, that's what we're supposed to do. When, when Jesus says that you are to pick up your own cross, I don't think he's saying, you know, pick up your own cross and act just normal like you usually do. No, he's saying you need to walk, walk to your death as well. And when we become Christians, what are we supposed to do but put the old man to death? So that Christ can reign in me, that Christ can live in me and make the decisions. No longer Luke Capps living, but Christ in me. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You're not going to be like Paul. You're not going to be able to say that Christ lives in me truly if you haven't denied yourself and started uh, picking up and carrying your own cross. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 very similar, verses 24 through 25. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we can conquer ourselves and say that I don't want to do the same things that I've been doing, then nothing else will take precedence. If we can even deny ourselves the sinful engagement, oh man, 
we can shut out any other relationship that would try to contend with God. But it's our choice. Are you willing to make that choice to deny yourself and become a disciple of Christ? If not, what is it that you are so devoted to? What is it that has become an idol in your life? When, when you've recognized what that is, hopefully you can recognize what it is. But if, when you do, just ask yourself the question. And I think that this is an important question. It's very direct. But I think it's an important question. When you realize what the idol is, I think we must ask ourselves, is this thing that I love so much and would give so much for and have already sacrificed so much for, is it worth hell? I know it's a direct question, but it's one we have to ask ourselves every time we're faced with temptation. I know this offers uh, momentary gratification and really instant gratification. But is it worth eternal hell? And if we're being reasonable, there's not one thing that is worth that. So when we think in those terms, and I mean honestly consider it, we can certainly muster the resolve to let those things that we have been so devoted to go. If you are not a Christian, you can let the things that will keep you out of heaven go. You can absolutely uh, give yourself to Christ fully, change the bad habits. I know that sometimes we feel like we can't get rid of some things. But do you want that peace that does surpass all understanding? Not peace on earth. Even when you become a Christian, there's still going to be some conflicts we have to go through. But if you want that peace that surpasses understanding, a peace that is far greater than peace on earth. That's a pretty interesting and compelling call, I think. You can have that. If you believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, willing to repent of your sins, get rid of those things that you've been devoted to, confess that he is the Christ, and confess that you will remain with him till the day of your death to be received in judgment by the master, in the joy of the master, and be baptized into his death to rise in the newness of his life. You can do that this very morning. If you are subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.